Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. Spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Hi, this is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. I have got a blank screen in my studio. So I have got no visual, no intro, no outro. So we're going to do the best we can um, today. So today's topic is... Is racial profiling killing white Americans? And we thought racism killed only people of color. Huh. Well, get this. The medical industrial complex exposes a racist standard of care that is preferentially killing white and insured patients. Can you, I mean, can you wrap your mind around that? That is just, just, Amazing. And what this means then is that your doctor using the standard of care is literally applying diagnoses based not on clinical issues, but based on your race. This is absolutely shocking. I mean, if really the government is concerned about discrimination and racism, man, they would just, you know, I mean, rein in this industry, which is not only uh, riddled with uh racist practice practices, but that these racist practices are actually resulting in people um, dying. And so as always, we um, you know get our information from the medical and industrial complex itself. Not from uh, any other source. It just seems almost uh, just unbelievable. Now, as you recall from my prior show, um, whites in the United States of both genders between the age of 45 and 54 are experiencing an unprecedented increase in uh, their death rate. There's, their life expectancy is just being, they're being cut short. They're just literally being um, mowed down like a blade of grass. Well, it turns out that like a blade of grass, they are actually being killed 
by a uh, uniform policy accepting um, all of them. So it's it's uh, this is something that um, the medical industrial complex itself has pointed out, and the effects are absolutely uh, astounding. So let's take a look and see what the uh, medical industrial complex says. So it's saying racial differences in opiate administration for pain relief at an academic emergency department. And this was done. This was done in 2015. And what they found that the um, doctors were actually administering more um, opiates based on uh, the doctor's age and the doctor's training. But what is happening now in 2017 is that people who are uh, are white in the United States are being prescribed higher narcotics in larger doses and literally being made into addicts. And the um, amazing part about this is that the increase in death in whites between the age of 45 and 54 has been attributed um, in large part, and it's more than 50% of the increase in death, is due to the increase in the prescription of narcotics in this uh, in this population, and so it seems that the uh, medical bias, while initially to the person receiving the narcotics, um, may appear to be an increased sympathy for pain and suffering, it may actually be. Um, simply a thinly veiled standard of care that leads to increased killing in this particular population. And this is something that was a real issue when I was in uh, medical school. We were taught in medical school that if a person was complaining of pain and wanted um, pain relief. As a doctor, it was our responsibility to give 
the proper dose of uh, medication. And the, of course, the question that came up was, well, what is the proper dose of uh, of medications? And this is something that was um, kicked around and kicked around and kicked around. And finally, uh, we were told, and this is the medical school, I kid you not, that the correct dose was enough. And so when I said enough, <laughs> silly me, I raised my hand. I said, well, how much is enough? And so I was expecting to hear something along the lines of maybe so many milligrams per weight or, you know, something like that. That, that Maybe that was what uh, would be enough. That maybe... Um, enough would be some dose um, that could be calculated because everybody knows that pain perception is, well, pretty subjective. So you can't really um, say based on a person's pain relief what's enough. But no, we were told enough is whatever it takes to relieve the pain. So this means then as Medical students were actually trained to dose the narcotic to the point of pain relief or death, whichever came first. And to me, sitting there in a medical school class, I said, oh, my God, that, that seems irresponsible to me. I mean, if you think about it, what if the narcotic doesn't relieve the pain and we give enough to kill the person? So, of course, uh, I, I wasn't... You know, that, that was not an authorized question. So if we take a look at a more recent uh, report in um, December 2016, um, the title is, is the, prescription of opioid, is the prescription opioid epidemic a white problem? I mean, the suggestion that if it's not a white problem, then it's not a problem. Well, I mean, a problem's a problem. But let's see what they say. I think... Also, in listening to this, what I'm going to tell you, you need it to understand how race is used to say, well, this is important or, well, it's not important. So the question is, is the prescription opioid epidemic a white problem? Well, obviously, if the doctor, by prescription, is creating any epidemic at all, it's a problem. Doctors should not be creating epidemics. But they want to ask, is it a white problem? Okay, so... Uh, my position, of course, is if it exists at all, it is a problem. Okay. So we have an economist, Ann Case, and a partner who reported that the life expectancy of U.S. white persons has declined. So largely as a result of drug overdose in the context of increased opioid uh, analgesic use. And so an under-acknowledged cause for this racial pattern is opioid regulation and marketing, which gave U.S. white patients the privilege of unparalleled access to prescription opioids, illustrating how racially disparate drug policies and healthcare 
practices ultimately hurt white patients. And the decrease in white life expectancy began in 1998, two years after the Food and Drug Administration approved OxyContin as a minimally addictive pain reliever. And I was going to say, this happens to us doctors all the time. They tell us, this one is not addictive. Don't worry. It's harmless. You can hand it out like candy. They always say this to us, and it turns out every single time it just is not true. But anyway, in 1998, this happened. Now, I was in medical practice in 1998, I want to tell you. And guess what? Since I had a policy in my practice that I was not going to prescribe any narcotic, period, done, end of discussion, I did not fall for the OxyContin, it's harmless trap. Okay, so in the midst of the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organization, um, this is the organization that certifies doctors' um, offices as well as uh, hospitals. Anyway, they had a call for pain to be monitored as a fifth vital sign for more adequate control. In other words, a person's sign of life that they exist is their their pulse, you know, the heart beating, blood pressure is the heart generating pressure, respirations are the lungs breathing, um, and temperature. And so if a person is out of the normal range in any of those, it's a sign that they they might be dying or in extreme health danger. <laughs> and so by adding pain as a fifth vital sign, what it means is if a person has normal vital signs, all four of them normal, but the fifth one, which is their personal suggestion that they are in pain, is more insistent or demanding than average, then you would treat that pain. So this is actually a license, we'll call it permission, to prescribe excessive drugs to people who are misrepresenting their pain. So if people are are really in pain, something else is going to go on, like their pulse is going to go up, their respirations are going to get faster, um, their blood pressure is going to go up. So someone who has serious pain, the other four vital signs will show it. And so to suggest that pain separately should be considered a vital sign apart from the other vital signs, it invites people who have moderate pain to request narcotics, basically. So the JCIH did this. Probably they had a little bit of help um, from some vendors, narcotic vendors. Okay, so OxyContin's manufacturer sent drug representatives to general physician's office, that'd be people like me, family practice, to promote its use for moderate pain conditions. And so they promoted the use of a highly addictive narcotic for moderate pain, like, you know, stub your toe. With rapid uptake in primarily white states, such as Maine, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Virginia, consumers opened the sustained release capsules by crushing and dissolving them. And by 2014, deaths from opioid abuse reached an all-time high of 18,000, a 3.4-fold increase from 20, 2001. So that would mean like in excess of 12,000 deaths. That's a lot of deaths. And so this policy change created 12,000 additional dead Americans. 
amazing. I mean, I don't know what to do, but like when people kill even one person, you know, it's called homicide, you know, people go to jail for that. In this case, policy change, 12,000 Americans dead. Eh, no problem. And besides, they're white. But I mean, really, does it matter what color they were? This is a problem. At the same time, addiction, neuroscience, biotechnology, federal regulation, and drug marketing each contributed to the representation of the opioid overdose epidemic as a white problem, subject to interventions distinct from those of the U.S. war on drugs. The resulting racialized differences between heroin and prescription opioid control resembled those created by the 1986 law designating crack or distinguishing crack from powder cocaine that led the United States to the highest incarceration rates in the world with black and Hispanic men six and three times respectively as likely as white men to serve time. So what's happening here then is you have the epidemic of heroin on the streets being treated one way with heavy sentences, incarceration, then you have the epidemic of whites taking prescription narcotics being treated another way, let's just say, sake of discussion, in a more lenient fashion. So through the 1990s, the U.S. National Institute of Drug Abuse prioritized the neuroscience that located addiction in the brain and supporting the idea that technologies such as sustained release capsules could reduce addiction by preventing the reinforcing rush of high blood levels of opioids while lessening the attention to social context. It also made the racial patterning of opioid marketing and regulation less visible for public scrutiny. In the United States, where insurance coverage and access to physicians are racially stratified, Opioid prescriptions disproportionately went to white patients, whereas non-white patients, even those with access to a physician, were less likely to be prescribed opioids, which increased racial differences in opioid use. Now, I can tell you, in medical school, if a black person wanted uh, opioids, they were considered um, drug-seeking criminals who were going to divert the narcotics for economic benefit. And if whites wanted narcotics, these are legitimate requests for narcotics that should be honored. Of course, the outcome of this policy, uh, we will see. So in addition, Congress legalized office-based opioid maintenance with buphenamine following expert testimony that methadone was inappropriate for the suburban spread of narcotic addiction. That is, middle-class opioid-dependent people were thought to be more often employed and unwilling to comply with daily observed dosing in methadone clinics that carried a stigma. So three years after the Food and Drug Administration approved Boost Bar, 91% of the U.S. patients taking it were white, and most were college-educated, employed, and dependent on prescription narcotics. In contrast, the methadone patients who were less, less often they were white, less college-educated, unemployed, and primarily used heroin. And so what happened then, by the standard of care being boost par for 
white people and methadone for non-white people, it created this big uh, division in diagnosis and therapy. So finally, Boost Prime Marketing was demographically targeted. So manufacturer-sponsored Internet service announcements for Boost Prime featured images of white professionals. <laughs> and Internet-based uh, Boost Prime prescribing Matching services leveraged a computer literate, privately insured clientele. And so Booth Par Prescription requires an eight-hour certification course, prescribing rather, and public insurance coverage for a Booth Par is variable, presenting barriers to public sector uh, prescribers. So in other words, people who want to write a prescription for someone who's on public assistance uh, can't really do that because it might not be covered by public assistance. And so in the context of public concern that white Americans are turning to heroin, policymakers are calling for reduced sentencing for nonviolent illicit drug offenses and the expansion of access to addiction treatment. At the same time, in black and Latin communities, many of the drug-addicted individuals continue to be incarcerated rather than treated for their addiction. Yet racially stratified responses to heroin are ultimately harmful to all Americans, including whites. For instance, the U.S. opioid crisis of the 70s that was centered in communities of color led to harsher penalties and criminalization. If we had invested in harm reduction programs and increased the availability and quality of addiction treatment, then we would have been better positioned to reduce the toll of the current opioid crisis. So in other words, whites are being addicted to these opioids, and they're dying of them. Now, they're saying that, you know, superior addiction treatment, but just for the record, addiction treatment is proven to be ineffective. On average, it takes seven admissions of one month to a treatment center for someone to kick their habit. In other words, people are as successful or even more so, more successful on their own, just like, by the way. So public concern about white opioid death creates an opportunity to reorient U.S. drug policy toward public health for all, to make proven harm reduction strategies widely available, such as naloxone for overdose reversal, and to implement interventions proven effective abroad, such as supervised injection facilities and heroin-assisted treatment, which reduce overdose deaths and improve a host of health outcomes. Interesting. So they're suggesting is that the government should open up facilities and supervise the injection of these drugs. So medication-assisted treatments such as Buspar, methadone, naltrexone, as well as psychosocial treatments, including motivational interviewing, cognitive and dialectical behavioral therapies and relapse prevention must be accessible with all communities. In other words, they're just saying, give us doctors more money. We created a problem by writing prescriptions. Now we want to get paid again to solve the problem. An array of options, many of which work optimally in combination, will enable opioid-dependent patients and their providers to tailor treatment to individual circumstances. And so this is the... Um, you know, kick them when they're down treatment. So you entrap these people, happen to be white, happen to be employed, happen to have more cash, 
by prescribing narcotics to them for moderate pain, which is like never appropriate. In fact, one could question the appropriateness of narcotics for even severe pain. So you entrap them in this addiction, and now you're saying, you know what? Give us more money, and we're going to help you kick the habit. I have to say, yeah, right. For example, expanding access to medically assisted treatment may require incentives for physicians who serve low-income patients, such as those in federally qualified healthcare centers and in methadone clinics to prescribe boost power. So in other words, they're saying, well, hey, why don't we give boost power for poor people? And then, moreover, we must rectify current and past harms of U.S. drug policies, decriminalizing personal possession of drugs and expunging the arrest records of thousands of mostly young men of color. But now let's, let's be sincere about this. People of, both, of all colors are having this problem. Who have been caught up in punitive drug policies are steps in the right direction. Racial impact statements, which require legislators to evaluate if and how criminal justice reforms will affect racial disparities before voting on them, are another example of proactive policies that seek to address systematic racism. Well, it seems to me if they had racial impact statements for medical policies, it would have saved a whole lot of white lives. So unless we scrutinize narcotic policies for their racial targeting, they reinforce inequalities in healthcare and law enforcement and leave white individuals, along with others, vulnerable in the face of inadequate attention to public health. Now, this is all put in some pretty vague, flowery language, but the blacks are going to jail, but the whites are going to the grave. This is not good for anybody. So what is the problem, and what might be uh, the solution? The problem here is what blacks complained of back in the 60s, uh, institutionalized racism. Only this institutionalized racism is basically getting doctors to prescribe drugs based on a person's racial uh, origin, basically the color of their skin, and saying, oh, well, you know, for people with white skin, we're going to give them narcotics for moderate pain. Subtoe, yeah, take a narcotic. Uh, For blacks, we're not gonna we're not gonna do that, and so these racially biased policies and standard of care in medicine it's absolutely deadly. Any racial bias that results in the individual getting more medical care is a bias towards the death of that individual. Now, it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's a white person problem. It's a white black person problem. But actually, it's a medical industrial complex problem. So whatever color you are, they've got a deadly protocol for you. Now, it just so happens that, you know, this uh, opioid epidemic situation uh, has been uncovered and revealed. But the uh, embarrassing reality is most protocols in uh, medicine, in the medical industrial complex, are inherently dangerous and deadly. And any individual, black or white, 
who's the beneficial uh, beneficiary of a bias towards increased medical intervention is also the recipient of a bias towards increased death and um, killing. So let's see what NBC News has to say about this. They've uh, taken a stand. Let's see. So addicts get opioids during, after addiction treatment study finds. This might be one reason why uh, addiction treatment is not effective if a person continues to receive narcotics. So two-thirds of people prescribed a drug usually used to treat opioid addiction, let's say naloxone, get more of the addictive drugs after treatment, researchers reported Thursday. That would suggest that the treatment is a failure. And more than 40% get an opioid at the same time as they are taking Boostpar. Uh, this is the uh, treatment drug for uh, whites. This is the racially biased standard of care. So these people are receiving Boostpar and a narcotic, potentially counteracting addiction treatment efforts, the team reported. The findings suggest that doctors are not checking patient prescription records and are prescribing painkillers to the very people who should not be getting them, the researchers report in the Journal of Addiction. Now, this is almost nonsense. Why? Because the pharmacies now are computerized. And so if a person um, had a prescription filled at one pharmacy and gets the narcotics filled at another pharmacy, then it's going to show up. So a lot of people know what's going on. The statistics are startling, but are consistent with studies of patients treated with methadone showing that many patients resume opioid use after treatment, said um, Dr. Caleb Alexander of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, who oversees the research. So again, this is basically what I've uh, pointed out to you, which is that addiction therapy, uh, as it's not practiced, is not effective. And so to put forward the proposition that doctors should be in charge of treating the very epidemic that they themselves have created is preposterous, absolutely preposterous. So the researchers could not see why the drugs were being prescribed, but the high rates of combined use of Boostpar and other prescription opioids is cause for concern. People who have been addicted to opioids are like alcoholics. Alexander said, they are extremely vulnerable to any dose of the drugs and should not usually get opioids again after treatment. Now, even he waffles on this. And should not usually get opioids. Should they unusually get them? What are we talking about here? This is ridiculous. This is absolutely uh, this is this is outrageous. So I'm saying it's not boost part. It's buphenorine, a buphenorphine. Um, so these drugs are being given to people who supposedly are being harmed by them. So if someone's addicted to narcotics, they're being harmed by narcotics, and then you continue to give them the narcotics, you're continuing to harm them. So Center for Disease Control and Prevention says opioid overdoses have hit record highs in the United States. 
The drugs killed more than 47,000 people in 2014, more than the 32,000 who died in road accidents. I mean, when you've got car accidents beat, that's where I draw the line. So car accidents, we're just going to take it. At some point, you have to take things on faith. So we're going to take it on faith. So a car accident is an accident, right? Unintentional. But once you get more than car accidents, we can't call it an accident. It's got to be a plan behind it. So I think these folks need to get their definitions a little tighter here. So if you're killing more folks in car accidents, then what's going on is not an accident, and they need to find the real source. The source, of course, is the uh, standard of care, which needs to be rewritten. So Surgeon General said last year that 78 people die each day from opioid overdose. Another 20 million have a substance use disorder. Hmm. The CDC issued new voluntary guidelines last May urging doctors to take it easy in prescribing the potentially killer drugs. Take it easy? How unscientific can you get? Does that mean the doctor should hand the prescription to the patient gently? I don't know. (laughs) Okay, CDC issued new voluntary guidelines last May urging doctors to take it easy in prescribing killer drugs. How do you easily prescribe killer drugs? This This is news. This is news. Now, they told me in medical school, and apparently it's true, that the medical license allows a person to commit acts that would be criminal that others would go to jail for. So if someone were a street dealer dealing heroin, let's say, or narcotics, and they sold narcotics to somebody and that person died, that street dealer might be, well, blameworthy. But the doctor committing the same act using a piece of paper called a prescription pad is in no way responsible. All right. Just so you know. So Dr. Alexander's team set out to see what is happening with people taking buprenorphine, approved by the FDA in 2002 to help people addicted to opioids. It's sold under the brand name Suboxone and Subutex. So it's not Buspar. I was mistaken earlier. It's Suboxone. It can be prescribed by physicians outside special clinics, so it's more widely available than methadone, the classic drug given to addicts. Although it is not FDA-approved to treat pain, doctors may sometimes prescribe it that way. Now, this is something that I had mentioned uh, back in the 90s. I said, why do heroin addicts need to go to a special van that pulls up in my neighborhood in order to exchange their needles? Why can't they exchange their needles at the pharmacy like the other drug addicts called diabetics do. You know what I mean? So just write them a prescription for their methadone and let them go get it filled, and that's the end of it. So what they're saying here is when it came to an epidemic or a drug use issue that mainly affects whites, uh, obviously diabetics, diabetes, but in this case, um, narcotics, no problem making it a prescription that you just hand out to the person, they go to the pharmacy, they get their long-acting um, narcotic inhibitor, and hey, they're on their way. So Johns Hopkins team used a database of pharmacy claims. That means pharmacy claims. Since the pharmacies got paid for dispensing the stuff. Of 50 million people in 11 states. 
they teased out 38,000 new Suboxone prescription users who filled prescriptions between 2006 and 13. They then looked at all the other prescriptions filled by those patients. Approximately two-fifths, 43%, of Suboxone recipients filled an opioid prescription during a treatment episode, and two-thirds filled an opioid prescription following treatment. And this was the, and this was published in the Journal of Addiction. So in other words, the Suboxone, we have to say, is not effective in treating addiction. I mean, you have to come to at least that uh, conclusion. It's not entirely clear <laughs> what is happening, Dr. Alexander said. It's possible some of the patients being treated for addiction also suffered a painful injury, say a sprained ankle, and needed an opioid for pain. Excuse me? Why would you give an opioid for a sprained ankle? You know, like ice it? Some crutches maybe? An ace bandage? I can honestly say I have never prescribed a narcotic for a sprained ankle. It would not have crossed my mind. Maybe a broken bone? And even then, it would just cross my mind. I wouldn't prescribe it because my policy was no narcotics. But if this guy, this doctor is such a pushover that he's going to prescribe a narcotic for a sprained ankle, then he is seriously part of the problem. He, he's the cause of the epidemic right here. It's also, he said, but that's not likely the case for most people. It's also possible that some patients are doctor shopping and going to more than one provider for drugs. Dr. Alexander doubts this. This is not a story about opioid shoppers, he said. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Come on, come on now. So might be the person is still addicted and trying to get narcotics. Okay, so he says the doctor didn't appropriately prescribe it for what Dr. Alexander thinks is serious pain, a sprained ankle. I disagree. He doesn't think the patients are seeking it. So patients aren't asking for it, and the doctors aren't offering it. How are the patients getting it? Let's see what this doctor says. And the doctor says, well, it could be they're doing so by mistake, Dr. Alexander said. And doctors may be offering the pain prescriptions not knowing the patient has a substance abuse disorder. Well, wait a minute. So the doctor is offering the prescription, is what Dr. Alexander is thinking. But he's thinking they're not offering it for sprained ankles. Okay. The right hand may not know what the left hand is doing, he said. There's a system in place in almost all states to stop this kind of thing from happening. As I told you, when you fill a prescription, you are under surveillance. I'm telling you, everybody but you knows exactly what's going on. It is not a secret. The prescription drug monitoring programs are supposed to keep track of patients taking potentially dangerous and addicted drugs. Clearly, they were not being used properly in at least some of these cases, Alexander said. Now, this is, this is an outrageous embarrassment because this thing was written February 2017, February 23rd. I was in medical practice in 1985 in the Indian Reservation. And let me tell you, when an Indian patient went to the pharmacy to fill a prescription that I wrote for a narcotic, I got a phone call from the pharmacy telling me exactly when his last prescription was filled, who wrote it, and that my narcotic prescription was written inappropriately early. This was the technology available in 1985. And so for anyone to suggest in 2017 that pharmacies don't or can't have access to a similar level of on-the-spot real-time data, 
I'm not buying it. Just not buying it. Could it be, unfortunately, that people affected have money to pay for these prescriptions and the drug company and the pharmacies don't want to lose a sale? Could it be these people have money to pay for the doctor's visits and the doctors don't want to lose a customer? I mean, we have to be real about this. The idea that A, this is accidental, or B, it can't be detected is utter nonsense. Utter, utter nonsense. And that Dr. Alexander, this guy with a medical degree, can't figure this out, you know, it, it's, you just have to say it's disingenuous. Many drug or prescription monitoring programs are difficult to use, and each state has a different program. Again, this just doesn't fly with me. Because as a doctor, I know the drug companies have access to my prescribing data summarized at the end of every month. And they have computers that comb that data and sort through whatever a doctor is prescribing, how much, how often, what drug, competitor's drug, comparing it, dollar amount, year to date. They have this kind of data that is collated every single month and sold to drug companies. And you're telling me that whoever wants to know can't get it, it this is ridiculous. Or at all with a doctor's electronic medical record and prescribing system, he said. So what's the point of these electronic medical records? It may be you have to click 50 times to get to the proper page, he said. It may be hard for your patient versus five other patients whose name is John Smith. This is so stupid. It's, it's, it is ridiculous. I had a medical office, only 5,000 patients. I had paper files. I knew exactly if someone had a narcotic and when. Of course, it was simple for me because I didn't prescribe them, but any other drug I could find out within minutes. And it wouldn't take me even the time of 50 clicks it would take on a computer. So he says, we need to get to a point where checking a prescription drug monitoring program is just as routine as checking a patient's kidney function before starting a high blood pressure medication, he said. So he's saying we have to put the patients under even more scrutiny, under even more surveillance. These programs are not doing any good if doctors don't use them. Most of the prescriptions were paid for by insurance companies, and Alexander saw something else that troubled him. The average treatment lasted only 55 days. This is really short treatment duration. Many experts believe that people should be treated indefinitely, Alexander said. Our finding creates concern regarding the comprehensiveness of medically assisted treatment that patients are receiving. And of course, he goes on to this whole article written in a responsible publication called NBC News um, totally ignores the obvious. And the obvious is these people are getting paid to kill, paid to preferentially kill white people, male and female, between the ages of 45 and 54. Actually, we can reach a little younger than that. But the, these people who are privileged have the privilege of being killed at an earlier age because they have the privilege of medical care. And this is a compelling reason uh, to, to drop your health insurance. I mean, if not having health insurance would have saved 
even half of these 47,000 lives. Well, we know it would have saved at least half of these 47,000 lives. Why? Because the death rate increased by 75% since 2002. So the last thing, I mean, you can't argue that increased access to health care is a positive thing for citizens. And if it's this harmful, how can you even argue that the government has a place in providing it? And to say the doctor can't know what's going on is, is outrageous because everyone else does. Certainly the pharmacies know. And like I said, when I was in practice in 1985, I got a call from pharmacy as soon as the patient showed up. Pharmacists refused to even fill the prescription. So how is it the present-day system is less robust, less capable, and we even have computerized electronic health records? So obviously there is no intention to help these addicts stop being addicts. And the way to help them would be for the doctors to not prescribe narcotics in the first place. That is the simplest thing. And to give doctors that freedom to not prescribe narcotics. When I decided not to prescribe narcotics, I got a lot of heat from the dope heads, of course, but also I even got a call from the medical society telling me people were complaining that I was not prescribing narcotics. So this is, uh, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous to even suggest that anyone cares about these 47,000 people who are dying because of narcotics. There's so much that can be done so simply. Number one, doctors could just not prescribe narcotics. Here in Panama, only certain doctors can prescribe narcotics. How about that? Yeah, amazing, isn't it? So most doctors are not able to prescribe narcotics. And so that'll put the kibosh right there on the whole system. So the real problem is the doctors prescribing their narcotics are causing the problem. They're causing the addiction. And so for doctors to stop prescribing narcotics is an easy fix. But no place in this article was that even proposed. And this, of course, is another problem with the medical industrial complex, that obvious solutions are just plain uh, ignored because there is no desire to solve the problem. Okay, we have 12 minutes left, and you are listening to... There I go, my screen came up. Thank God. You are listening to Healing with Dr. Daniel, the Rainbow Soul Channel, Blake Radio Network. And we are in the question-answer period. So we're going to check out that uh, chat room and see if there are any questions. So there we go. Let me go mosey on over there. Okay. Okay. Friend. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, Dr. Downs, other friend in the ICU with Guillain-Barre syndrome. All right. And for those of you who don't know, it's a common vaccine complication, though I don't know how their friend got there. Who? What can be done to protect this person, and what are some treatments we can do? Thank you so much. All right. So the biggest problem with Guillain-Barre is that while the person is in a coma, paralyzed, um, their skin breaks down, um, they get ulcers, infections, these things happen. And that's just, that's just awful. So 
I, I don't know what they are doing now for these people. Um, you can look into something called a clinitron bed, clinitron bed. Um, see if your hospital has that. And what the clinitron bed does is it has some floating on a frictionless um, interface so they don't get um, these ulcers, sores, or breakdowns. You can also um, massage the person with, um, I would recommend castor oil, but problem with castor oil, of course, is it's going to get all over the place. The hospital's going to complain. It's going to ruin the sheets, blah, blah, blah. But um, applying castor oil would be uh, the, the, best, uh, the best thing. So if you could you know, apply castor oil to the person, maybe waist down, um, or really any part of the body you could, and then try to communicate with the person. Sometimes they can communicate by blinking their eyes or something. And see if they're having pain anywhere and put maybe Vicks Vapor Rub wherever they have pain. Um, aside from that, just make sure that they're getting um, enough hydration or enough water. But it really is, unfortunately, part of a um, waiting game. <laughs> okay. Got a lot of questions here. Let's see if I can sort this out. Mm. Mm. Okay, down to your I have a small ulcer that appears literally out of nowhere on my lower gum line, right below my tooth. I have applied turpentine and clove oil, and the area starts to heal, but it reopens again. I guess possibly due to my routine toothbrushing, flossing, eating, and so on. My question is, what could possibly be causing the ulcer and how to get rid of it? Well, definitely ease up on the brushing. Maybe you could brush the rest of your mouth, but not that particular place. Same with the flossing. Just uh, kind of let it be. As far as the eating, um, if you eat some gelatin, um, that might help repair this gum better because the gum is basically a bunch of gelatin. <laughs> okay. Okay, so of course I have to do a little disclaimer here, right? So anything anybody hears on my show is definitely not medical advice, not meant to diagnose, treat, cure any symptoms or disease, any information I give, of course, you follow at your own risk. Okay. Dr. Daniels, do you think that Charles Sheen, George Bush, Dick Cheney, and Oprah are following the standard of care? Um, You know, I have to say Dick Cheney definitely is. I mean, you can't get a heart transplant without following the standard of care. Um, uh, Yeah. And the neat thing about this healthcare system is each person, regardless of their income, has to wake up on their own. And um, it seems here in the United States that our politicians actually really are submitting to this torture and uh, genocide. And it's just amazing to see these people literally march to their death. I mean, you take a look at even... um, you know, our presidential candidates. And you can see that um, they look like they're relying on medical care, and uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, 
Okay, let's see. All right, let's scroll this up. It's probably not sauerkraut juice bad for hypothyroid people, not that I know of. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, is it true that some medical people do not follow the standard of care they force on other people? Absolutely, absolutely. There are a lot of doctors who themselves are vegetarians. A lot of doctors themselves refuse drugs. A lot of doctors uh, refuse vaccines, and especially among nurses. The um, number of people who administer the strand of care but don't use it themselves is actually quite high. And I think that that's something for patients to really take note of, or people who choose to become patients or place themselves in the position of being patient should realize that the doctor that's taking care of you, if he looks pretty healthy to you, chances are he's not following the standard of care. And I can tell you, my friends who are doctors who use the standard of care in their own lives, they are not healthy people. They have cancer. They have heart attacks. Um, their health is atrocious. If you follow the dietary um, instructions that we doctors are taught in medical school, it's terrible. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, do you think the Western society is more of a master-slave society than even the Middle Ages? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in the United States, there are definitely um, class levels. Certain people are simply slaves, and that is it. Other people are more like um, court knaves. Other people are various assistants to um, the king. And there are these different status positions. And that's what licensure is all about. So doctors, lawyers, and dentists, for example, are licensed basically as assistants to the government, to the rulers. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, what do you know about um, certain people and groups having private nurses that allow them to do um, whatever they want and sign non-disclosure agreements? Okay, I can tell you this. Um, I trained at a hospital for the rich. Super, well, eh, I guess you could say super rich. In other words, people checked in with their own private duty nurses. But those same people who checked in with their own private duty nurses, um, they suffered as well, not as much, because the private duty nurse had orders from the patient. So the private duty nurse was under orders from the patient, from the patient's family, and the private duty nurse um, usually limited herself to administering comfort therapies, those therapies for the person's comfort. So because you're a private duty nurse, you're not going to sit in dirty sheets. You are going to have a massage every day with skin softening lotions applied. Um, you are going to have enough water. You're not going to have to wait uh, to see if someone else you know, is going to come when you ring the bell. 
Um, the nurse is right there. She handles whatever she can handle, and she will actually leave the room to go get help. So you are not left at the mercy of the um, of the bell. However, everybody in the hospital gets a standard of care. Everybody does. Um, there was there was some doctors back then who would admit their patients for juice therapy and literally give them juices, but those doctors were kicked off the staff. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, supplying insulin needles to certain communities instead of heroin needles doesn't destroy communities, families, and generations as quickly. Oh, it absolutely does. Check out dead in bed syndrome. Check out all the diabetics um, who die and whose deaths are covered over um, and who die very young. I would say, I would tell you that the epidemic of killing diabetics by medicine is every bit as damaging, maybe even more so, than the heroin epidemic. It's simply a matter of marketing and um, how the media plays it. But if you look at the numbers and the impact, it is even more devastating. Absolutely much more devastating. Okay, we are just about at the end of our show. Our time is up. We'll see you again next week. And as always, think happens. And I found my control station, so we have music. <laughs> 